We're in Akihabara, the electronics hub of arguably the most technologically centered nation in the world, Japan. The surrounding blocks are a blinding continuum of futuristic objects, from cribs that sleep train your baby to virtual reality for the elderly, complete with friendly robots to help direct your search. The technology on display here is meant to help with every facet of human life, to propel humanity further into the future by pushing the limits of what technology can offer. The Olympic Games are about pushing humanity's athletic limits and the preparation of those feats, the equipment used to perfect them, and even how the games themselves are captured and produced for the world to see have more to do with technology than ever before. From one year to the next, one team will have a faster bike than other teams. They don't want last year's model. They want next year's model. We oftentimes have equipment that's at the very start of its life cycle. They actually have developed uh, underwater microphones for diving specifically. 3D printing is our best friend now. A couple clicks on the computer, and they print it, and they mail it out to me. From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the Tokyo Olympic Games. As we near Tokyo, we'll bring you the story shaping the greatest athletic competition in all the world, held in extraordinary times. I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi, and over the 12 episodes leading up to the opening ceremony, we'll dive weekly into a facet of these games to discover the people and the places that will define them. In 2021's Tokyo, the bullet trains and vending machine restaurants won't be the only mind-bending tech on display because the Olympics are in town. And despite their origins in 776 BC, the game's motto of faster, higher, stronger has increasingly relied on better, smarter, smaller electronic aids. Tim Layden from last week's episode explains. I think what we're going to see, obviously technological advancement is always a part of all sports. And that goes right down to the way that athletes train, which is a very um, organic thing. Whereas the equipment, the shoes, the implements, they're separate from the body and unencumbered by pesky limits like fatigue and genetics. They've seen incredible changes over even the last Olympic cycle. And they're the obvious place to start on events where equipment literally propels athletes to the finish line. We have a wireless shifting hydraulic disc brake road bike that weighs 6.8 kilos. And it's a, <laughs> it's a little it's a little silly. It's cool, but it's a, yeah, it's a lot. The final turn for Alex Howes. He's got the finish line in sight and he's finally going to do it. Your new national champion. My name is Alex Howes. I am currently 32 years old. By the time this comes out, I'll be 33. I'm a professional road cyclist from the United States of America. Alex, road bikes are kind of like the pinnacle of taking something simple, right, and turning it space age. I mean, they began as an alternative to the horse and buggy. Now what kind of bike can we expect to see in Tokyo's road racing events? For Tokyo itself, given the fact that it's as hilly as it is, most guys will be on, I mean, we, we'll call it a climbing bike, but every rider, at least 98% of the riders, I would say, that are going to be at the Olympics racing in the time trial will have spent a significant amount of time doing aerodynamic testing either on the track or in the wind tunnel or both. A lot of times it's both. Um, 
nobody's on a bike that hasn't been optimized for aerodynamics uh, in one way or another. And then beyond that, it's no longer just the bicycle frame. Nearly every component on the bike is optimized for aerodynamics, and certainly the wheels to the you know handlebars, the seat posts, the cables that we use to shift and brake with, like all that has been optimized. Um, it is complicated and expensive to do it. Uh, you look at what guys were riding around in back in the 90s, uh, you know, it basically was the equivalent of a t-shirt, uh, just kind of flap around out in the air. And if you go from that extreme to what we're riding around in generally, I mean, we're looking at somewhere around 20 watts or so. I mean, it might not sound like a whole lot, but when you're, you're talking difference between winning and losing, um, 20 watts is going to be the difference between, you know, winning or being... 75th place or something out there um it's it's pretty significant um another example would just be how aerodynamics works in the peloton um the guys at the front versus the guys who are sitting kind of in the sweet spot uh in the middle of the peloton it can be a 60 percent difference uh in energy expenditure so that's it's pretty extreme wait 60 percent easier just because of air how do you even measure that uh, when we're looking at aerodynamics and when we're you know, trying to analyze what's fast and what's not fast, uh, from a clothing perspective, bike perspective, position on the bike, the top guys will spend uh, a significant amount of time in the wind tunnel. And then from the wind tunnel, they, you know, they analyze the drag numbers and go from there. Um, most of our clothing is, is custom fit because cyclists in general don't have... Um, how should we put this? Your your typical human body. Uh, we're we're uh, kind of weird and gangly, oftentimes. Um, so we have we do things that are custom fit, and then with that, there's certain fabrics that we'll put on different parts of the body. They they kind of trick the air into uh, staying tighter against your body or redirecting that air a little bit. So on the road, when we're out there racing. It can be a bit of a challenge to communicate because it's generally we're going pretty fast and a lot of times you're in pretty high stress situations. But we use you know, the old school method of just shouting at each other. Uh, but then we also have radios so we can talk amongst ourselves, you know, my teammates and I. Uh, and then we also get information from our director who's falling behind in the car, uh, planning and you know, observing the race and making decisions on the fly. And in the car they have satellite fed TV. They'll be watching the race and then making decisions behind. Uh, usually the hardest part is keeping the earpiece in your ear when you're sweating all over the place and ripping down mountains at 60 miles an hour. Uh, so we usually tape that thing into our ear. So nothing too fancy there, uh, but it seems to work well enough. I can't imagine what 60 miles an hour or roughly 100 kilometers an hour on a bike looks like. I'm picturing warping like a time machine. And in a way, you are kind of riding a time machine. What's changed on the actual bike we'll see in the road race? You know, I'm, I'm old enough to say that I've, uh, I've, I've won races on a steel bike before, um, which you know, none of these young guns are going to be saying that, I think. But I, w I would say there's a few equipment shifts that, that have really you know, changed the landscape within cycling. Generally, what wheels you're going to use, because the wheels themselves make a, a huge difference in aerodynamics. Um, but most teams have moved on to a, uh, an electronic shifting system where you have just little motors in your derailleurs uh, and carry a battery that's generally stored in the, uh, in the seat post. 
and traditionally you always had a, a steel cable that pulled on the derailleur and if your finger wasn't strong enough or your hands were too cold like you weren't going to be able to shift um, and then continuing from that there's been a lot of you know 3d printed aero bars for the time trial uh, which are you know essentially the rider goes through all this time and effort in aerodynamic testing to find their optimal position and then they basically have a an aerodynamic cockpit that's printed to mold directly to them uh you know it doesn't fit anybody else um so that would be what guys spend most time thinking about uh going into tokyo all these efforts to refine and customize over and over again they've brought cyclists closer to their equipment to shifting and braking and feeling exactly like they want to for some athletes however Equipment allows them to chase medals, but also much more. In wheelchair racing, it's, um, it's really important to be part of your equipment because you are one. <laughs> um, you are part of your racing chair. Uh, I've really enjoyed over the years of working with engineers, and I think they've really enjoyed the process as well as studying wheelchair racing and what they can do to help our sport and really evolve it. Tatiana McFadden is going to win this. And Tatiana McFadden gets her first gold in Rio. My name is Tatiana McFadden. I am in Paralympic track and field. I have seven Paralympic gold medals and 17 medals overall. The resume is just incredible, Tatiana. You've been racing for so long and you've been so successful at it. What's changed in wheelchair technology from when you first started racing to now? <laughs> well... The first racing chair was much bigger than me, <laughs> so there was lots of padding everywhere. I, I was on spoked wheels. It was aluminum, much shorter, um, very different build, and 3D printing is our best friend now, which in the beginning, I can give a great example. So in the beginning, for racing gloves, we went from like garden gloves to kind of a big uh, bulky glove and it had a big piece of rubber. And then we went into making our own gloves out of plastic. So you would boil the water, you would throw in your plastic, and then you would, when you grab the plastic out, you had to quickly mold it to your hand. And those were the start of custom gloves. It was a very... <laughs> hot process. <laughs> so you had to do it very quickly um, without burning yourself and keeping it on there. And the worst part was that if anything happened to your racing gloves, if you lost them, if you left them out in the sun, they would melt. Um, you know, they could easily break. So you had to really be careful. But we can make them again, right? Because, you know, we didn't have an identical copy. Um, so now 3d printing is awesome because I have been scanning my racing gloves. So my racing gloves are made out of partly carbon and made out of partly plastic. But if I want to change my racing glove and make it a little bit different, I just call up my wonderful engineer friends and they do a couple clicks on the computer and they print it um, and they mail it out to me. So that is like awesome. It's so quick. And the racing chairs are can also be printed as well um, if you make them out of carbon, which is awesome. Um, so you can really make fine-tuned changes and then just click print and then put it together. 
Um, we've also used motion detectors as well to track our hand speed or to track the motion of our stroke, which is really important to make sure that our arms are even. Um, so that's been motion capture has been really important. So the advancement in technology doesn't just affect your on-field performance, right? It must trickle down to another piece of equipment, one you can use every day. Oh, my day chair is the chair that I use every day. So wheelchairs have come such a long way where they've just become a little bit sleeker. They've become a whole lot lighter. And that's kind of important because I put my chair into the car myself. So I don't want a heavy chair because that puts strain on my shoulders. Um, I've actually gotten a lot of compliments on my day chair on how sleek it looks um, and how tiny it is and how just the simplicity of it. Um, and it's crazy because my very first red wheelchair was so clunky. I think it was like twice my size. It was very heavy and it was, um, the footrest was very sharp and it had these handlebars too, big handlebars, like they would stick way up. So I'm happy the way that technology has really, really changed over time. So it seems tech has very much infiltrated every aspect of present-day sports, bringing athletes into ever more futuristic discussions about human performance. And sports from our past are no exception. Javelin throw, I mean, it can be traced back to our real primal origins of early man needing to hunt and what better object to try and hit something from distance than a, a sharp stick, right? Yeah, the object of the event hasn't changed, but I guess the way in which we deliver it has changed over time. The world champion is Kelsey Barber of Australia. What a year she's had. Hi, I'm Kelsey Lee Barber. I'm from Australia and I'll be competing at the 2020 Olympics in the women's javelin throw. Hi, I'm Mike Barber from Australia and I'll be an Australian team throws coach in Tokyo. Mike, what was so interesting about this motion that humans had been doing and I assume sort of perfecting for, for tens of thousands of years? The real beauty of the javelin throw is that it happens in all three planes of motion. So you've got to think there's linear straight motion in the run coupled with lots of rotation in many planes about pretty much every joint in the body. So the actual forces going through the, the body are just something something to behold. And, you know, from the things that we've been able to measure, the front leg maybe hits, oh, I'd say, somewhere between 12 and 15 times your body weight when it hits the, hits the block. You know, the, the forces of the elbow and the shoulder theoretically should tear the ligaments. <laughs> They're that, far, that high, but obviously the javelin throwers condition themselves to be able to handle that over, over the time of their career. And so... One of, the, one of the things I learned very early in my PhD was that it's almost impossible to truly quantify what, we, um, what we're seeing. And I was smart enough to move more into coaching than, uh, than javelin throwing at that point. So I've been very lucky to continue to try and explore and measure what we can, but also just be comfortable with the fact that when you're working with elite athletes, you have to be able to be, you know, trust their feel and their understanding of the event and marry that up with the science. Okay, so what's changed in technology then for this old sport? Yeah, we, we've tried full 3D motion capture uh, in the past. And whilst that gives you a lot of information, it's also quite clunky and not that practical in the field. So the, the main thing we use day-to-day is, is just video, simple video. We use simple software to, to analyze that, get some timing data and some angles out of it. 
when we do the 3D motion capture, it's in a laboratory setting. So we're, we're lucky we have a building that we could throw indoors and throw out into a field. You know, we used something like 25 3D motion capture cameras set up all around the thrower. But the, uh, the difficult part is that when you've got to actually capture all the joints, you need to put it, you know, I think it was an 80, 80 little uh, ball markers taped onto the, uh, to the athlete, at, you know, every, every joint on the body. So as I said earlier, the, the rotational element of the javelin, it happens at quite a high velocity and it's quite high forces there. And the issue we were having was that the markers would just fly off and every time the marker flies off, you've got to recalibrate. You've got to stick them back on and recalibrate the whole system and have got a top secret <laughs> project to try and get automated uh, motion capture from video for us so we can just pull out angles and data without having to put all the markers on the athlete. So that's sort of the next frontier for us. So with all this technology and technique sort of merging together, is there a sweet spot in a throw when you know you've executed everything perfectly? So for me, the big one is I always feel like this snap of my fingers. And, you know, there's maybe two or three times in my whole career where in that moment that the javelin comes off my fingers, I've been able to tell it's a really good throw. Wait, wait, wait. How are we hearing this? You know, one of the things with audio design and which has changed over the years is just trying to get as close as possible to that athlete. Are you recreating it well enough that you can make me understand a little bit more about that sport? My name is Carl Malone. I work for NBC Universal as the director of sound design for sports and Olympics. Carl, I want to bring you into this conversation on Olympic Tech because the broadcast is really how most of us experience the Olympics, right? Sound is just something we think happens. So why does it need to be designed? Well, sound design is, you know, it can be a very personal thing. But, you know, in, in reality, the sound design has to match what's happening uh, on the picture monitor, as we say, or on the on the TV. So there's a lot of different types of audio that we are involved in at the moment. Like, you know, you do surround sound and you do immersive audio and you put a lot of things either behind you or even sometimes above you. But the idea is with sound design is that you try and bring that into the home and make it appreciated uh, by people who may not know the sport. But then again, if you're a skier and you see downhill skiing, you really want to convey to the skier um, you know, sitting in their couch, exactly what the conditions are like. So for Tokyo, h- how does sound actually get from, say, the starting gun of a sprint to my ears at home in the U.S.? Well, the first, the most important thing about the sound coming out of the gun is that at first it's in sync. <laughs> so you got to capture that immediately. Uh, you got to capture that sound. You know, as soon as you see the, the flash of light from the gun, you, you need to hear the gunshot. So the capture is everything. So no matter what we do in audio, the microphone that's capturing that audio is the most important part of it. And then it may travel digitally because digital is very fast, or it may travel analog back to a remote TV truck that's at the venue for athletics. And then from the truck, it's mixed from there and usually sent back to the International Broadcast Center. All the world's broadcasters will have their technical facilities there. So we'll take that gunshot through the truck back to the IBC, where we'll have another control room that could be the primetime control room uh, for NBC. And then from there, uh, that mix will be stuck onto the uh, video. And I think it takes about six different backup paths um, back to the US. So there will be undersea paths from the IBC. And so from one of those six paths, 
uh, arriving in the States. It'll end up in uh, normally in Denver in Dry Creek, um, where our master control is. And that will basically, you know, put the primetime show or that gunshot um, straight onto air. It's certainly a long way to go and, and a lot of um, fiber pieces, but, you know, we're traveling at the speed of light. So um, we're, we're talking, you know, milliseconds in order for that to get on air. Wait, so it's actually going under the whole Pacific, like on the sea floor? Yeah, there's a, a lot of, uh, we don't own these cables, of course, and they are, you know, very strong multi-core cables. You do hear sometimes of submarines, you know, catching a, a, a cable, but these are very thick uh, multi-core cables that will have thousands of strands of fiber. How crazy is that? And how has sound design changed for the Olympics specifically? You know, one of the things with audio design and which has changed over the years is just trying to get as close as possible to that athlete, not so much in their face because, you know, uh, in the old days you'd be, you know, literally trying to stick a big microphone very close to them. Whereas here we have a lot of uh, smaller mics and radio mics and uh, even shotgun mics, which is a, a mic um, with an unfortunate name. But the idea is, is that the uh, you know, it captures audio from a long way away. So we're always trying to tell the story, but we're also trying to give the listener the best seat in the house. Um, We didn't used to do that because it was harder to cable into these uh, areas. You know, you don't want athletes tripping over cables. Now we have a lot of RF microphones. The actual microphones are much smaller and hidden. We've got microphones in the ground. We have underwater mics. We have mics underneath the ice. Um... Like the athlete, they can hear the arrow leave the bow when they're doing archery. But people at home can hear that arrow fly through the air all the way until it hits the target because we have microphones buried in the ground in a a line the whole way um, to the target. And, you know, there are people who have been hit by javelins and all sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I I think that we've made things so remote to the athlete that they don't really realize that they're there. Um, We do work with uh, particular mic manufacturers, and they actually have developed uh, underwater microphones for uh, diving specifically. It's basically picking up the vibrations of the water on, on the mic. That's so incredible. And I would imagine that the number of microphones has increased over the years as well, right? Uh, we have hundreds of microphones, but uh, I'll give you an example of diving. Diving board has, I would say, probably about 20 microphones on it. And you may think, oh, what do you need 20 microphones for? But, you know, diving, you'll normally have the divers um, stand sort of at the entrance to the diving board. And you want to pick up with these shotgun microphones, anything that they're saying. And there's so many different, you know, places that they stand and may talk or they they count as well. Then they, when they go to the end, sometimes they turn around. So you want to make sure you're picking them up. Um, So, uh, yeah, we have have hundreds of microphones, both, um, you know, underwater, over water, (laughs) in people's clothes, in the ground, lots of places you wouldn't imagine. But still, sometimes I'm sure it isn't possible to pick up everything, right? What do you do in that scenario? Yeah, the uh, idea of sweetening sound is, uh, it's its really a very good, um, you know, I don't want to be giving away too much secrets, but maybe I'll just give one away, that it's very difficult to get the sound of the oars in the water. So um, it's uh, not unknown for us to have a track of the oars going in the water. So every time the they, uh, crew are, are pulling in the water, you hear, um, well, you can you can hear the crew sometimes. You can hear the coxswain who's, you know, giving orders. 
and maybe the coach who's going by uh, along the um, water's edge on a, on a bike or on the uh, bike path. Uh, but then just getting the sound of the oars going in the water as they push through the water. Uh, a lot of times we will have to foley that um, because that will, um, it's just not possible to get it with the amount of noise and creaking and things like that in a boat. Um, but these are things that you would never notice until you knew about them. <laughs> and now, an improbable but not impossible Olympic moment with Ahmed Farid from NBC Sports. April 2007, a medical office somewhere in San Francisco. 22-year-old NCAA mile champion Shannon Ropery has just been given the news from her doctor. The pain and tightness she's felt in her left hip over the last few weeks is a lot worse than just a strained muscle. It's actually a femoral neck stress fracture. And if she doesn't stop running right now and take months off for rehab, major surgery would be required, possibly ending her entire running career. Not having much of a choice, Shannon is forced to miss her final collegiate races to focus on healing her body. But with her dream of competing at Beijing's 2008 Olympic Games less than 500 days away, Shannon is now in a very different kind of race against time. And the countdown is on. Every missed training session makes lining up for gold more and more far-fetched. Although not quite as far-fetched as the solution, which literally came from over 250 miles above us the International Space Station. In space, exercising is key to combat the muscle and bone atrophy caused by weightlessness. But running on a treadmill without gravity is, in a word, awkward. So, NASA scientist Robert T. Whalen developed a way to mimic Earth's gravitational forces in orbit. Astronauts on the ISS zip everything below their waist, treadmill and all, into an airtight pressurized bag. The air pressure inside the bag is then lowered, applying more weight and impact onto the astronauts' bodies, increasing the workload. Back on Earth, this space station tech, when thrown in reverse, allows an injured runner to do the exact opposite, reduce the effects of gravity. So, just six weeks after her diagnosis, Shannon Robery zips into a treadmill and, like we all do, presses on some arrows and decides on a speed. But a little further to the left, she has another set of arrows, which the average terrestrial treadmill doesn't have, allowing her to defy Earth's gravity by up to 60%. And with that simple touch of a button, this incredible sports technology inflates not only the treadmill chamber, but her aspirations of an Olympic berth as well. By August, Shannon has recovered enough bone density to run with her full terrestrial weight. Only months after her stress fracture, Robery returns to competition, embarking on a spring campaign that would see her set some of the best U.S. women's times ever for the 1,500 and mile distances, winning multiple events and, crucially, her Team USA qualifier. Which brings us to this improbable but not impossible moment, August 23, 2008. The women's 1,500-meter final at Robery's first Olympics. Shannon having already won the race against time and gravity just to be here, now awaits the crack of the starting gun alongside 11 other runners. Off it goes. Shannon powers into her graceful and light strides. High above Beijing, the crew of the International Space Station is done with breakfast and morning inspections. The next item on the schedule, exercise. 
As one astronaut runs, another floats over to check the radiograms for the Olympic results. Shannon Robery of Team USA has placed seventh in the 1500 meter final. At that point, the best ever finish by an American woman in the event. A massive result, in part thanks to this weightless technology. If you're a runner shooting for the stars, it helps to have the treadmill from space. I think some of these things that bring people closer and help them feel sort of more immersive in the event, both sound and vision, uh, we hope will make it a better experience. For how we see the Olympics, there is no better person to talk to than Dave Mazza. I'm Dave Mazza. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for NBC Sports and Olympics. Did we've been talking about tech in the Olympics. As chief technology officer, what does that encompass for you? I like to say we're responsible for anything that plugs in. We have to design and build the International Broadcast Center, which is about a 70,000 square foot space in the Olympic City, and equip it with all sorts of electronics and television hardware in order to, to base our coverage there. Okay, so what's the goal of all that tech? Well, it's certainly not to display the technology. Our whole goal and our goal has always been on the Olympics to, to tell the story of the athletes. Now, to do that, we have a tremendous amount of hardware and complexity that goes into making those telecasts. And sure, we are, we are trying to push the limit on technology, but only in case it makes it better or more immersive for the, for the audience. So the tech is enabling us to see better and see more as well, right? I, uh, I, my first Olympics was 1984 in L.A., but uh, my first one in this job was 1996 in Atlanta. In Atlanta, we had about 170 hours of content that came out of Atlanta for the whole of the 96 Olympics. And for Tokyo, we'll have over 7,000 hours across all of the broadcast and cable platforms and all the live streaming. So in, in, in just the first day, we've doubled or tripled the, the length of the whole Olympics in 96. In just the first day in Tokyo, I think there's roughly 400 hours of coverage a day. Oh, wow. And quantifying the Olympics seems to be a pretty big part of the experience, right? I guess for you and for the viewer. Tell us about all these stats we often kind of take for granted. Well, in things like swimming and track, we instrument the cameras to be able to show what the camera is pointing at so that you can render the graphic on top of the camera properly in perspective. But the actual data of how fast the runner's going or the swimmer's going or where they are, that's just pattern recognition. So a very fast computer is looking at our camera feed, trying to decide essentially where the swimmer is, where the runner is, where they were a frame ago or a 30th of a second ago. And then we render that graphic onto that same camera. And while it may seem like the tech we talked about was created in the fever dream of sports engineers, the reality is that any piece of equipment that has found its way into the Olympics is actually tightly regulated. And making those regulatory calls isn't exactly an easy job. Manufacturers and sports federations have always had the job of balancing each other out. And when that balance isn't struck, next generation technology has been outright banned. 
Some examples from recent memory include designs of full swimsuits. The laser swimsuit designed by Speedo has officially been banned from all swimming competitions. And fiber-plated running shoes that were simply too effective to allow for fair competition. The running community has become divided about a style of shoe pioneered by Nike known as the Vaporfly. As tech becomes increasingly ubiquitous, so have the regulations. And in a lot of ways, equipment has already outpaced the ways we can use it in the Olympics. Remember Alex House and his bike of choice. So it'll be a lightweight aerodynamic bike, um, guaranteed to also be at the weight limit. What do you mean by limits exactly? Uh, yeah, so the UCI, uh, the governing body of cycling, they have a minimum bicycle weight, which that came about because, you know, guys were... Back in the 90s, they were drilling holes and everything and uh, important components of the bicycle like the brakes and derailleurs and such were failing mid-race. So the UCI made a, a minimum weight, which they somehow came up with 6.8 kilograms. And that's what we still have today. So there's there's always been that, that tug of war between you know manufacturers, developers, and what the governing body will actually allow. We don't generally have a lot of say in what the UCI puts out uh, and what they deem to be safe or unsafe or, uh, I don't know, sometimes they do it just kind of like for fashion. Uh, I mean, there's a, a sock height. I think there might still be actually, they, you know, at a maximum sock height. I'm just like, come on, man, what is this? Seems, seems like we could all be spending our time doing something more important than uh, worrying about how high my socks are. But whatever, that's the nature of the beast. Um, Anytime you have a box like that, it, it is fun to play within those rules and sort of think outside that box. Sure. And the goal of all that regulation, I would assume, is to keep a level playing field of sorts, right? Have you ever experienced a competitive advantage because of your equipment? I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that when I first came on the scene in 2012, uh, it was like the first year they had a, an aerodynamic road bike in road races. Um, I remember that year we had we had a huge advantage as a team, and we knew it, and everybody else knew it. And then year to year, we've seen different bicycle manufacturers kind of push the limits, and one team will have a faster bike than other teams. You know, whichever manufacturer came out with that, it's like, ooh, they're uh, they're on a good one. Okay, but there are some decidedly low-tech things you do that can make a difference as well, right? <laughs> okay, the leg shaving thing. Um, I think probably the biggest reason guys shave their legs at this point is uh, tradition. But um, there's a lot of things that it, uh, it helps with. I hate to say it, but aerodynamics, it does help with that. Maybe not a lot, but certainly at the level that we race at, it does make a difference. I've done a couple high-level races with hairy legs, and you could tell. It's like, uh-oh, should have shaved. <laughs> Sometimes the low tech of manpower is also used for broadcasting. Two cameras we still use today, and one is the, they call it the Moby Cam, and it's an underwater camera in swimming that goes along the bottom of the pool and tracks the swimmers. So you see this upward shot of them swimming, you know, through the murky water. And the first time I saw that thing, I thought it was some motorized winch and everything. First time I saw that thing, I was shocked. It's, it's a guy on what looks like an upright stationary bicycle. And he's pedaling with a direct drive of a pulley system that literally moves the camera back and forth. And when they get to the end of the pool to make the turn, he stops pedaling, pauses while they do the turn, and pedals the other way. So it's just incredibly simple. From equipment to data, Every sport has some kind of tech revolution happening. 
From Kat Osterman in softball. As a pitcher, um, I use what they call Rapsodo, which is a device that you can put on the ground in the middle of your bullpen, and um, it reads your speeds, your spin, and it takes all that and shows the path of your ball. To Jess Fox in Canoe Slalom. What happens is we have live video feed that we can put head to head. So once I've finished my run, I can get out and analyze my run and see where I lose time compared to a competitor as we put ourselves head to head. Uh, That's probably one of the most useful tools in our analysis. To action sports. I really think that, that in surfing, it's the experimentation with shapes and with different kinds of foams is is really where uh, the progression is taking place. You know, on the recovery side of things, these trainers that these athletes have now, they've got so many different techniques to get an athlete that gets hurt back out on the playing field so quickly. The tech of healing can be used for small gains. We've been using the, the Normatech compression boots, I guess they're called, compression boots, tights, pants, pretty frequently to kind of basic yet ridiculous machine that you know pumps up different chambers to compress different parts of your legs at different times and yeah we've been using those quite a bit look kind of ridiculous and i'm sitting in these giant inflated boots that come up to your your butt but uh i don't know i think they help but equipment can also do much bigger things and heal so much more But what changed was me. I was getting healthier. I was getting more independent, Um, not only healthier physically, but healthier mentally. I could dream for the first time. When you ask a seven-year-old what they want to be, you know, they have an idea. You know, they say, teacher, we're firefighter. And uh, for me, I didn't know. I didn't know you could be all those things. And so... It allowed me to dream of becoming a great athlete. At the end of the day, what's really making gold medal winners? So the Olympics are pretty special in a lot of ways in that, I mean, just to, just to get to the Olympics, you, know, you have to be all in. You have to be 100% dedicated. But there's a lot of factors there when it comes to luck. And you certainly make your own luck in the sport in a lot of ways through preparation and hard work. But there's a lot that you can't control. So talent, luck, hard work, and then technology. I would say the technology is probably four to five percent. The luck is maybe 30 percent when it comes to actually winning the thing. And then hard work is probably 60 percent of it all. Technology has made us better, there's no doubt, and allowed us to measure the feats of our Olympic heroes. It brings athletes closer to their potential and brings us continents away to feel like we're there to witness their greatness. It seems the common thread amongst those who use technology to perform when the stakes are great is that it's best used to enhance our human traits, traits shaped by millennia of athletics. Just the absolute wonder of watching a javelin score and travel its parabola trajectory through the air is still something that I think if any of the events in in stadium has a real wow factor, it's the javelin. You'll likely see the most tech-heavy Olympics in Tokyo. And now, I mean, it's um, what we do and what we've tried to do from a technological perspective to, to get an advantage over other countries is, um, you know, we've tried to use all the technology we can. And at the end of the day, it still comes back to that real primitive survival aspect of this event is, okay, who can, who can run in and throw this? Who's brave enough to hit it the hardest? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It will make hard things easier. 
So it's, it's telling those stories and getting the audience close enough to them to both understand and care about the athlete. And even though I'm a tech person, that, that to me rings far truer than some whiz-bang technical thing that they got working now. Having said that, there's a lot of whiz-bang technical things that we work on every day. That's my job, uh, and I love it. But the goal is not to show the technology. The goal is to tell the story. The story of evolving technology used by extraordinary humans. That's it for this week's episode of The Podium. Subscribe now wherever you're currently listening to get automatic downloads. For more Olympic content ahead of Tokyo, check out NBCOlympics.com. And starting July 23rd, tune into the networks of NBC. NBC.